The book of Genesis, chapter number 42 this morning, please. Genesis number 42. Genesis 42. And uh, stand with me as we read a brief portion of God's Word from a familiar story to many of you. In Genesis 42 and 21, and they, being the brothers of Joseph, they said one to another, we are verily guilty. Verily, in our King James Bible, is truly. So they said, we are truly guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. And therefore is this distress, this evil, this tragedy come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. And you may be seated. As these 12 brothers were growing up together who later became the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of the brothers was the father's pet. He was the favorite child. His name was Joseph. And his brothers developed a very deep resentment against him because he was his father's favorite. And so one day while they were far away from home herding their cattle and their sheep, the brothers had decided they had had enough of Joseph. And so they hatched this plot. And in the plot, they decided they would kill him, which they did. And then they took the blood of a little sheep or a goat, an animal, and they dipped his clothes in the blood and went back to the father and said, Joseph was killed by a wild animal. See, here's the blood on his, on his garments. However, Joseph was sold into slavery down in Egypt, and the years went by. He spent 12 years in prison because of a false accusation and allegation against him. And after getting out of prison, though, he so distinguished himself by his wisdom, his ability to tell dreams and other things, that he was promoted and he went up the ladder. And now he is the prime minister of the nation of Israel. He's second in command behind the Pharaoh over the whole nation. He is the man who carried out the plan to save the nation from a famine and to save food and, and uh, store it away. And now his brothers have been affected by the very famine that he has prepared Egypt for. He hasn't seen them now in almost 20 years. He's probably... 40 years old, and they're probably sprinkled through midlife. And they come down to Egypt to purchase food. And as they arrive there, they, through a set of circumstances, hailed in before various officials, and they go up the hierarchy, and then they stand before Joseph himself. Joseph knew who they were, and he could understand their tongue, Joseph 
was almost like playing a game with them at this point. And so they stand before Joseph, and he tells them that they can't have any food unless they leave one of the brothers behind with him. Well, they don't know that he can understand their language and that he's listening. And he hears them say these words. We're guilty. We're truly guilty. When we sold Joseph into slavery and lied about it and told our father about it, well, we're getting what we deserve. Reuben, one of his brothers, said, well, you know what? I begged you all not to do it. The boy was screaming and crying and say, don't do it, and you did it anyhow, so we deserve this. And I particularly call your attention to verse 21. We are truly guilty. This is Forgiveness February, the last Sunday that I'll do in this series. And the message today is God's answer to man's guilt. God's answer to man's guilt. This is the first place in the Bible, the first mention of the word guilt in our Bible. And yet, throughout the Bible, we see the word guilt, guilty used numerous times, but more, the word is not particularly used, but the idea of guilt is everywhere throughout the Scripture and our need of forgiveness. How does the world try to deal with guilt today? I think it's important that we separate our subjects here. I would say to you, first of all, that nowhere in the secularization of our society that we've seen happening during my life of ministry, I've watched our nation move from a Judeo-Christian nation to a nation that was totally secular. Nowhere do you see the secularization of our culture today more clearly than in the area of how we look at guilt and how we deal with guilt. You see, secularism has its own religion. A secularist says, I'm not religious. Yes, he or she is. They have a religion that is just as dear to them as Christianity is to you and me. They practice just as assiduously as we do. And the religion is the religion of psychology. Now, psychology, I studied a good amount of it in college, and here's what I learned. You don't open up a psychology book like a Bible and say there's one stream of thought here and everybody's in agreement on it. In psychology, it's a bunch of conflicting theories, different men, different women have contributed to it. There's no single belief that is, quote, psychology. There are many different theories, many different ways that psychologists look at life. Some of them conflict with each other. For example, Freud, one of the most famous of all, said that people, are, that people have guilt, they feel guilt because they're victims of their past, that their parents were too strict on them or they came from a church that was way too strict or society itself expected too much of them and so they haven't measured up to what they were told in their youth, and so they, they feel guilty. And along comes Pavlo, the man who conditioned the dogs at the ringing of the bell, and Skinner came along behind him. And they said, well, man, 
Man's problem is guilt, but man feels guilty because he's a victim of his conditioning. He's been conditioned to respond in certain ways. And along behind them comes Carl Rogers, and Rogers said, well, people have this ideal in their mind. They know what they ought to be. It's their own view of themselves, but they don't live up to it. And so the difference between what they expect of themselves and how they actually perform is a big gap. And so they feel guilty because they're not living up even to their own expectations. That's his theory of guilt. And then you had Maurer come along, and Maurer said, well, it's people's bad behavior that produces guilt. They act bad, and so they, they feel guilty. And so you have all these different theories from the world of psychology that tries to explain to us why people feel guilty as they do. Dr. Menninger, who founded the famous Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas, and Menninger is probably, if I were going to have respect for a uh, secular psychologist, he would be the one I'd have more respect for because he wrote a wonderful book from a secular standpoint. He was not a Christian. In fact, he, he may have been an atheist or an agnostic. But Dr. Menninger wrote a book about 25, 30 years ago called Whatever Happened to Sin? And he wrote this book because he was seeing all these explanations for sin and guilt all over the place and none of them satisfied him and what he saw working, in fact, in the lives of his own patients. And so he wrote a very well-known book. I think it's still in print today. And I quote from Dr. Menninger. He said, quote, people used to talk about sin, but they no longer do. He said, psychology has taught us to reclassify to reclassify what we formerly call sin, and today we call it sickness or we call it crime, but we don't call it sin. Whatever happened to sin, he said. He goes on, and he talks about the problem that that creates for people. Now, listen, you'll have to think with me a little bit here today, but it, I promise you it won't hurt you. You can do it in church. It's painless, okay? Here's the problem. If we reclassify what the Bible calls sin as sickness or crime, then we have a worse problem. Dr. Menninger saw that. He said, the problem is that sickness cannot be forgiven. If we tell people you're, you haven't sinned, you're sick, well, then the problem is that if you are sick, you can't be forgiven for being sick. If you're sick, then you need to be treated. You need to be healed. But the guy who is laying somewhere in the bed or in the ward or he's being treated by a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and we've told him what your problem is is not really sin, it's a disease. When we tell him that, he may say, I've got a disease. I don't have sin, but I'll tell you what he does have. He has guilt. He still hasn't been able to get rid of the guilt, even if he thinks he's sick. And today, boy, many things that we used to call sin, now we classify them as sickness. 
I don't even have time to go into all of them. And it's interesting to me that Jesus, when he ministered to people and he healed them from their sickness, do you know what he always did? He almost in every case, he said, I forgive you of your sins. And then he healed them and sent them on their way. To him, forgiveness was more important than the physical disease that they were suffering from. Well, so if people are sick, even if we, t- if we tell people that have sinned, look, you're not really a sinner, you have, you're sick, well, they still haven't, a pro- they don't have a solution for their, for their guilt. And what about the person that's committed a crime? Well, crime can't be forgiven. Crime has to be punished. A penalty has to be paid for crime. And so the criminal, we lock him away, but he still, he has no cure, no answer, no solution for his guilt that he still has. And Dr. Menninger concluded his theory with this. Listen to this. To call sin, sin is the kindest thing we can do for people. Because, he said, if they have medicine, if they're sick, they need medicine. If they've committed a crime, they have to be punished. But if they have sinned, there is hope for forgiveness. And forgiveness can take away their guilt. Boy, I thought, that is wonderful. That guy ought to have been preaching somewhere. Because that explanation satisfies our logic. It makes sense to us, doesn't it? So the solution to sin, psychology says, is therapy. You know, need to go see some expert. He's going to sit and talk with you, and he's going to talk you uh, to a solution. Or maybe we'll send you to a group, and we'll have group therapy, and maybe a group of people can somehow help you get rid of the guilt and the shame of sin. And that's all psychology can do for us. Or it can prescribe some pills. Oh, God forbid, because we're in the middle of an opiate epidemic in America. 70,000 people died last year. We don't need to just be trying to deaden people's emotion. If I give you a pill for your guilt... I haven't taken away what caused your guilt. I've just numbed you to where you can live with your guilt. Think with me about this now. This is serious. And so the world doesn't have a solution for sin. Therapy, pills, doesn't get to the root of the problem. And what is the extent of guilt Well, Mr. Jack Winslow, Dr. Jack Winslow, directs a large British mental hospital, and here's his quote, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. That conscience just eats people up. People need forgiveness. That's why we're having Forgiveness February. So the world's attempt to deal with guilt is highly unsuccessful. We can see that around us. But number two, what does the Bible say about guilt? What does the Bible say about guilt? Last week, I talked about bitterness, and I wanted to put the two together, but there just wasn't enough time because both of them are such huge, huge problems in the lives of not only the unsaved, but also in the lives of of God's people. So today, 
What does the Bible teach about guilt? The Scripture teaches that guilt is a God-given response. We feel guilty because God made us capable of feeling guilt. Guilt is the God-given response that occurs within us when we become aware that we have sinned against God or some other person. It's a complex set of emotions, sorrow, regret, anxiety, fear, and so on. But guilt is the God-given response. That's what I want you to understand. The God-given response that occurs within us when we become aware that we've sinned against God or we've sinned against someone else. C.S. Lewis said, and I quote, True guilt is the inner alarm system that reveals sin in our lives and shows our lack of fellowship with God, end of quote. Now, we have a name in the Bible. The Bible has a name for that inner alarm system that C.S. Lewis referred to. And what is, what is the alarm system called in the Bible? It's called conscience, isn't it? Conscience. We have a conscience. We, human beings, are the only living beings who have a conscience. Wolves don't have consciences. Trees don't have consciences. Fish don't have consciences. Only mankind has a conscience. God put that within us. I think it's a part of the image of God that he created in every human being. Adam and Eve, you remember them? very first human beings, and they sinned against God. He said, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And what did they do? They had to go do it. And what was the consequence? They knew that they had sinned. And so they hid themselves. When God came to visit them that day, for the first time in history, they had hidden themselves. They didn't want to be in the, in the presence of God. That's what conscience does. It tells us that we're wrong. And Adam and Eve knew they had violated God's law, and so they hid. And by the way, nobody came and told them that they had sinned because, well, there wasn't anybody come tell them. (laughs) And so they didn't need anybody to tell them. Conscience lit up like a fire in their heart. And they said, We have done wrong, and we do not want to face God. And so they went off and hid somewhere in the trees. I've used the analogy through the years that conscience is like a warning light on my dashboard. And I thought of it again two or three days ago. I got my car in the garage. I cranked up my car, and and there's a light that's not supposed to be blinking. It's blinking. And you know what my response was? Oh, grab my wallet. Hundreds of dollars for some microchip because this crazy light is blinking. And we know that many times those are false alarms. And my light went out before I got off of the driveway. And I'd never seen it before. haven't seen it yet. Cross my fingers. But conscience is like that warning light on my dashboard. Now, listen carefully. It doesn't fix anything It just tells me there's a problem. It doesn't fix anything. It just tells me that there's something wrong. And when my conscience light comes on in the dashboard of my heart, it doesn't fix me. It just says, Bill, there's something wrong between you 
and the Lord or between you and somebody. I found this in my study and listened to it. Conscience. Be very happy when it hurts you and be very worried when it doesn't. I really like that because we live in a world where everybody's trying to get rid of guilt, see? We're trying to get rid of it. We hear the phrase all the time, guilt-free living. Let me tell you something. You don't want to live in a town where there's no guilt because evil will take over. Conscience is God's protection to tell people, stop, what you're doing is wrong. And we want to drown it with alcohol, and we want to numb it with pills, and we want to deny it and call it something else than sin. But God made us to have a conscience for that warning light to come on and say, slow down. You're going the wrong direction. Be very happy when it hurts you. And be very worried when it doesn't. Do you know what they call people whose conscience doesn't ever affect them? We call them sociopaths. We call them criminals of the very worst types that have no active conscience. You don't want to be there. Now, there is a word of consideration, though. We need to distinguish between what we call real guilt, which means I have done something wrong, and just feeling guilty sometimes when I didn't do anything wrong. I was brought up in a home that was a strict home, and thank God for it. And it might have given me sometimes a little bit of an overactive conscience. My warning light might come on, and so I have to be discerning, and I have to think, now, wait a minute, is that really, really wrong according to God's Word, or is that just a a guilt feeling? And this can become a very serious thing. For example, we have a PTSD program here on Wednesday nights, and we have 20 people or so that attend that. And most of them are people who have been in combat or been in extreme stressful situations. And and, And people who observe human behavior have noticed something we call survivor's guilt, survivor's guilt. And here's a, a squad of men, a platoon or a battalion or whatever, a, a squad. And they're over here in Afghanistan or they're in Iraq or somewhere today and they're fighting and a shell comes in and blows up and it kills three or four men. And what we've found out is that the men who survive, they feel a sense of guilt. And I've talked to some of them. They would say things to me like, well, why did I live and why did he or she die? And they almost feel guilty for having survived. I read of a woman who was in a bank, a line at a bank in front of the teller. And people were going up and making their deposits. And finally, a man two or three ahead of her pulls out a gun when he gets to the teller and he points it at her. And he says, I'm robbing you. And a woman panicked and did something. He shot her and killed her. And this woman is observing this. And she did nothing wrong, but she really had severe problems after that. She felt guilty just having been there and having witnessed the same. So 
We've got to be discerning. We've got to use God's Word as our map. We've got to understand that there is real guilt. I have sinned against God vertically or horizontally against another person. But then I've also got to sometimes say, wait a minute. No, I didn't do anything wrong, so now I have to deal with feelings rather than a real situation. James Stalker, very famous Scottish theologian. And listen to Stalker, quote, Conscience comes to us in lonely hours. It wakens us in the night. It stands at the side of the bed and it says, Come, wake up and listen to me. And then it holds us with its remorseless eye. And our buried sins rise out of the grave of the past. They march by us in melancholy procession. And we lie in terror looking at them. Nobody knows but ourselves. And next morning, we get up and we go forth to business with a smiling face. But conscience has had its revenge. I never have read anything that I think so powerfully describes guilt and the reaction of the conscience as that. So, what's God's response? What is God's solution to us? I know that speaking to a large audience of people, I know that at some point in life, every one of us have to deal with guilt, and every one of us have to deal with bitterness. And when people handle it wrongly, it can cause them real problems. Now, I'm not here today to be an amateur shrink and help you with your, all your emotional problems. I'm here as a preacher of the Word of God to help you be right with the Lord, to be in right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not attempting to counsel you. There's some pretty good counseling advice in here. But my point is simply this. I want you to have a clear conscience as a church, as a member of the church, as an individual, and the entire church. I want us to be a church that has a clear conscience. I want us to be a church where God can come in His power and send us revival. And He can't do it if a large percentage of the people in a church are dealing with bitterness and dealing with guilt and they never resolve those issues. I believe that, bitter, that people dealing with their bitterness and receiving forgiveness of it God's way, and the same with guilt, I believe that is absolutely essential to revival. As I read the history of revivals across the world, in every single case where God blessed with a great revival, I'll tell you what was going on. It, without exception, the people became aware of their sins. They confessed their sins. They dealt with their bitternesses. They, they became free of their guilt by following the way of the cross. And then God poured out His Holy Spirit. But He won't, pay, he won't pour it out on people who are full of bitterness and guilt. And so this is part of the formula for revival, ladies and gentlemen. Our conscience that operates within us as Christians is evidence that God wrote His laws of right and wrong in our hearts. 
See, here's the thing about the conscience that the world doesn't understand is the conscience that was put there by God, and it knows, it just knows, quote, knows. It just knows when it is done right and when it's done wrong. You read the second chapter of Romans, and you'll see that. I won't turn you there to, 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 to read it to you. But the conscience is so sensitive And you don't have to have read a book. You don't have to go to Sunday school or church. You don't have to pick up a Bible even to know that some things are right and some things are wrong. The Bible says the heathen know right and wrong who've never seen a Bible. I've seen this in little children. I've seen a child, a little two two or three-year-old toddler child who's never who can't read or write, and they do something wrong. They do something they know. Mom and daddy said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And then this little child does it. And you look at them and say, Mary or Charlie, whatever, what did you do? And you know what they do? Ah. Nobody, they never took a lesson on sin. They haven't been to Sunday school. Why are they crying? Because conscience came alive. They just knew the law of God, listen to me, is written in the hearts and minds of every human being. The only way that they get rid of that is you have to send them to college and get them educated out of it. Otherwise, people know what is right, and they know what is wrong. And when we do wrong, old conscience lights up like a Christmas tree and convicts us. But listen to me, just because conscience came alive, being convicted of sin is not being forgiven of sin. Pharaoh held the people of Israel in slavery for 435 years. And Moses went to him and said, let my people go. And he said, I will, but he didn't. And Moses went back and he said, again, I will, but he didn't. And I will, but he didn't. And I will, but he didn't. And then finally, he came to Moses and here are the words from the book of Exodus. I have sinned. His conscience told him. He was a pagan. He didn't have a Bible. He had never read the Ten Commandments. I have sinned. He had sinned against his conscience. But you know what? He didn't get right with God. He was drowned in the sea by an act of God's judgment. He never got right. Saul, the first king of Israel, said, I have sinned. Conscience but he never repented, and he died blaming everybody else for his sin. Judas betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ, and he came to the the elders there, and he said, I have sinned, but he never turned to God. His guilt was so great that he took his own life. But other people, when their conscience lit up, And they came to the Lord, and they were forgiven. 
And so David said after his horrible sin, I have sinned. But the difference with David and the others aforementioned were that David repented of his sin and God forgave him. And you read Psalm number 32, and he says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. And you read Psalm number 51, he tells you about the process he went through, how God had forgiven him. When he turned to God, he was saved. The prodigal son came home to his father in Luke chapter 15, and what did he say? I have sinned, but he repented, and he was forgiven, and he was accepted. So when conscience convicts us, oh, my friend, hear me, hear me, hear me. When your conscience light comes on, you do whatever it takes to make that light go out. You go to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, you confess your sins, and he says, I will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I don't know why you would want to live in a prison where that every time you moved or turned, you would find yourself with this feeling of guilt, being overwhelmed by your own conscience. I want you to turn to a scripture with me that to me is so interesting and applicable to this. It's in the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the background here. And then I'll read to you the passage, the verse. Colossians, chapter number 2. Now, here's the story. In the Roman days, in the days in which Jesus lived on the earth, when a criminal was crucified, as they often were because the Romans crucified multiplied thousands and thousands of people. When a criminal was crucified, here's what they did. They would nail this criminal to the cross. They'd actually had a list of his crimes, his sins, the charges against him posted on his cell. They actually would put that up there, a written list of the, the charges and sins against this criminal. And so when they marched him to the cross, they would stick this on his clothing, and then they would march him to wherever the crucifixion scene was, and then they would take that list, and when they nailed him to his cross, they would nail that list of charges of the crimes that he had committed so that the public could come by and see those. They would nail that to his cross. Then they would put the cross in the ground, hoist him up there, and he would hang there and die with the listing of his crimes and his sins above his head. Now stop, think with me, and this is a little detour, this is incidental. What was listed above the head of Jesus Christ? He didn't commit a crime. The only thing they could come up with is he said he was the king of the Jews. But those other criminals, the Bible doesn't go into it, but we know this happened from history. The other people there, they all would have had that list attached to their cross. Now, go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. And if you're a Christian, this ought to bless your soul. 
When Jesus Christ was dying, what was he doing? He was blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, the list of sins that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he took that list out of the way and nailed it to his cross. Do you know what the Bible is saying there? Jesus Christ took the listing of all the sins of humanity because he was dying for us all. And so up on that list, as it were, not, not in reality in his case, but in, in the mind of God, Jesus Christ was saying, and I'm dying for every murderer, and I'm dying for every act of fornication and adultery, and I'm dying for every lie that was ever told, and I'm dying for every theft where anyone stole, and I'm dying for every attitude that was was wrong and sinful, and I'm dying here for every evil thought, whether it was pride or lust or whether it was covetousness, or I'm dying for every loss of temper. I'm dying for every use of profanity. All the body of sin of the whole universe, Jesus Christ nailed it to the cross, and he blotted it out. And that is the basis of Christian forgiveness today. I don't need to go around as a believer now feeling guilty about the things that I've done in the past. Jesus Christ took that guilt. Jesus Christ has paid for that sin before his Father, Almighty God. Justice has been satisfied, and so now he can act toward me in nothing but pure grace. I notice in the New Testament the word washed. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 uses it. And I like that word washed because you remember Pilate? What was he doing as soon as he gave the order to have Jesus killed? He was washing his hands. You remember in Hamlet, after they committed the crime and killed the man, that the woman is washing her hands. People who feel guilty are trying to get rid of the stain, the dirt. They wash their hands. They tell me that in mental wards, a lot of people who are dealing with extreme cases of guilt wash their hands sometimes hundreds of times a day. Well, I've got good news. 1 Corinthians 6 and 11. He lists a bunch of sins, and then he says, such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. Washed cleansed, sanctified, made holy, justified, declared innocent before God. That's what we have in Christ. Revelation 1 and 5, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with his blood. No Christian ought to ever be the prisoner of guilt. 
Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's how we are right with God. That's what forgiveness February has been about. That there is forgiveness, total forgiveness, at the cross of Christ. And there's not forgiveness anywhere else. Only God can assuage sin and guilt and wrong and evil. Now, sometimes, and I don't want to get into a counseling session here, of course, but sometimes if you're aware that you've sinned and harmed another person, you need to go to them. That's what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 18. Sometimes it even is so extreme that we ought to go and make restitution because we've taken from somebody that which their life can never be the same until we've made it right. But I won't get into that. But I'm telling you, you can be released from the prison of guilt because you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Boy, guilt is a terrible prison, terrible place to live. But Jesus said it like this, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free.